It's my pleasure to be with you. If you'd open your Bibles um, to the book of Mark, I hope you brought your Bibles. We're going to be looking at the text um, rather closely today. I don't have a PowerPoint for you, so you want to have it right open in front of you. My name is Zach. If you don't know me yet, I've been a member here at Westlake for a few months, and I've been attending for the last year. I'm a student at the University of Geneva and happy to be a part of this church, blessed to be sharing the word of God with you this morning. I want you to know that I've been given express permission by the pastor to be American and let my American personality fill the room because this is a large space. So you might notice a difference in speaking style and personality and I just want you to know I'm being authentic. Turn to Mark chapter 2. We've been going through the book of Mark, and Mark is answering this question for us, who is Jesus? We've seen in the first chapter, as it was pointed out to us two weeks ago, that Jesus is the true son of God, and this is revealed at his baptism. We see that Jesus is the true Israel, as he experienced temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. We see that Jesus is the true suffering servant that Isaiah spoke about from old. We see that Jesus is the true king of Israel because he has the authority not only to teach but to forgive sins. And this amazed the scribes and the Pharisees. And so there's this gradual recognition as you go throughout the first chapter of Mark and Jesus is preaching his message of people slowly starting to realize who Jesus is. And this leads to increasing crowds, increasing recognition of Jesus's ministry such to the point where at the end of chapter one, we find that Jesus had a hard time coming into certain places because there were so many people packed. But then as we go into chapter two, we find that there's a series of five controversies with the religious leaders, ultimately progressing up to the point where if you look in verse six of chapter three, they get to the point where they decide they need a plot to destroy Jesus, to kill Jesus because of who he's proclaiming himself to be. And The text that we're going to be looking at is the second and third controversy, where he reaches out to a tax collector and to sinners, and then he makes these statements on fastings. So we're right here in the middle, but overall, what we have to recognize as we approach this story is that Jesus is bringing something new and transformative. Just like the heavens were torn open, Mark says. Matthew and Luke don't use that word, but Mark says the heavens were torn open. And so too when Christ died and the temple veil was torn, so too when Christ comes, it would be as if he's bringing new clothes that the old ones can't contain, new wine that the old wineskins can't contain because he's bringing something new. But to understand what it is that he's bringing that's new, we have to understand the context of what things were like in the old. This is what it means to understand that Jesus comes and preaches that the time is fulfilled. So, the main point of my message today for you, which I'll give you up front and repeat at the end so you can remember, is this. The joy of a Jesus follower is seen in a holiness that seeks out sinners. And the sorrow of a Jesus follower is seen in a fasting that longs for his return. The Jesus follower has joy and sorrow. We both feast and fast. 
Let's get into the text and see how this is displayed. We can divide it into three sections. Verse 13 and 14, where Jesus calls Levi, the tax collector. Verse 15 through 17, where that's then expanded and he sits with sinners and he feasts with them. And then finally, 18 through 22, this section on fasting. And in each of these three sections, we can ask the same question. First, who is Jesus? Secondly, who did Jesus come for? And finally, what does Jesus transform? We're going to ask that same question, those three questions in these three sections. So first, who is Jesus? Let's see the very first section. We find that he's out beside the sea, and the crowd is coming to him, and he was teaching them. Well, what is he teaching them? We've already seen the summary statement of Jesus' sermon is given in verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, why is he teaching the kingdom of God? Perhaps when you evangelize and you share the gospel with those today, you speak a message of repent and believe the good news. You're forgiven of your sins. But do you use the phrase, the kingdom of God is here. Believe in the kingdom. That's not a message that we usually use. And why is that? Well, it's because we're not thinking the way that Israel was thinking. They were thinking of themselves in this story all throughout the Old Testament. So let me try and give you my summary of the Old Testament in two to three minutes. This is the kingdom of God throughout scripture. We start in Genesis. God creates the heavens and the earth as this sovereign king. There's no contest, there's no competition. He speaks it into existence. And then he invests his image into Adam and Eve. And he promises them that they have a place and that they are going to experience his presence. He gives them a law and he tells them to rule as he is a ruler. This is the kingdom of God. And yet their sin against God results in exile. They're expelled from the land of the garden. And they go out and we see the creation of earthly kingdoms, which ultimately culminates in the kingdom of Babel. And what happens to the kingdom of Babel? Because of their rejection of God, they're expelled. They're sent into exile and dispersed throughout the world as they were originally supposed to be. And so God answers the sin of Adam with the call of Abraham. He makes a covenant. He says, I have a people. I'm going to promise you a place. I'm going to be in with you, in presence, and I give you a law. And then he clarifies that as he gives the covenant with Moses so they know exactly what that law is. He then gives a covenant with David so that there will be a king and there will be a representative over the people of Israel. And yet we know Israel sins, and what's the consequence of their sin? Deuteronomy is clear. Breaking the covenant leads to exile, leads to being expelled from the land, and they're taken off into captivity, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. Now, at first we're told the exile would only be 70 years, right? Daniel is excited that there's gonna be an end to the exile where the people come back to the land. But if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you find that when Israel comes back to the land, to the place that they were promised, they still believe that they're in exile. And why is that? It's because they recognize that, or at least the leaders, Nehemiah and Ezra do when they pray, that there is such sin in the heart of Israel. When they went off into those other kingdoms, they didn't repent. They continued idolatry. They continued in their bondage and spiritual slavery to those foreign kings as they were in physical slavery as well. And so the story of the Old Testament ends with this big question mark. 
how is Israel going to experience the presence of God again? How will God return to his people if they are still in exile, even though they're in the land of Israel? And that is the question that Jesus comes to fulfill. When he says the kingdom of God is here, he is saying, I am Yahweh bringing the presence of God back to the world. Now, why does this matter to you? You say, well, I'm not a Jew. I'm not of the people of Israel. Well, I want you to understand that what God is doing in Israel, he is doing in and for the whole world. You see, you too are a people in exile. You too are in spiritual bondage to sin and slavery. And apart from Christ coming to bring the kingdom of God, you are lost in your sins. And that is the message that Christ is coming to bring. So know the story of Israel so you can know your story, your place in the drama of history. And know that as Jesus Christ has come to bring us out of exile, when he says to follow him, that is what it means, to follow him into this new kingdom to recognize that he is the king of the universe. And even though we come to church and we often do externally religious things, you can be in a circumstance of religiosity and not truly be out of exile. Israel needed to understand that. And so too do we today. So the first thing we learn about Jesus is he's the king that calls us to come out of exile. The second thing is that he's a physician who can heal the sinners. We find this in verse 17. And yet, often we don't think of ourselves as those that need healing. Think of a hypochondriac. A hypochondriac is someone that thinks they have a disease that they don't really have. But this is really the precise opposite here. We often don't think we have a disease that we really do have. I wish there was a term for it. I tried looking one up and I couldn't find one. It's something like a pathological delusion. It's a denial of reality in the sense that we don't see how sick our hearts are. We are so often not like the sinner who knows that they're broken and needs repentance, but the Pharisee that's hard-hearted and can't see that in all of their extrinsic religiosity, their hearts are truly far from God. And we need to see Christ as the physician that can heal us, not just bring us to life, but every day pour out new mercies and graces as we meditate on the power of the cross. So Christ is the king that calls us to follow him. He's the physician. And finally, he's the bridegroom. We see in the next section, in verse 19, he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Why would Jesus refer to himself as the bridegroom? Again, not a term we often use in our, uh, in our evangelizing. Um, come and be married to Jesus. Well, let's remember the Old Testament context yet again. And all of that um, story of Israel of being in a covenant with God, how do we think of covenants today? Well, they're a publicly declared commitment and promise with a consequence of breaking. And this is how we should think of marriage. Marriage itself is a covenant. And we know that when, often in Christian uh, wedding ceremonies, they'll speak of marriage as a covenant. But we forget that Israel was married to God in the Old Testament. And so their idolatry and turn to sin was really adultery. And the prophets are so clear in their language, they call Israel a whore because of her sin. And in fact, if you read in Jeremiah chapter three, verse eight, it says that God sent Israel away with a decree of divorce. This is how serious sin is to God, who is holy and righteous. And yet there's hope. Those same prophets that say that God divorced Israel speak of a new covenant 
All of these covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David, they're described as the old covenant. But God speaks of a new covenant because as he calls his people to repentance, he also speaks of a time when the people of Jerusalem will be sung over, and as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So that's why Jesus comes and describes himself as the bridegroom. He's saying, I am Yahweh, and I am here. The kingdom of heaven is a wedding feast. And we know, because we have all of the New Testament, how does the story end? Read the end of the book of Revelation. All of history is waiting for this climax where we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we can feast with God and be in communion with him for eternity. That is the arc of history that we are striving for and Jesus is anticipating at this time. But take a moment to think about what this speaks of, the character of God. If you've ever had the chance to see a marital relationship where a spouse experienced the intimacy and love of covenantal commitment, and then there is adultery and unfaithfulness and brokenness in that marriage. And yet, you still see the spouse exercise a forgiveness and restoration and seek to restore that relationship and stay faithful even when the partner did not then you can have a sense of how powerful and profound the love of God is to forgive sins and pursue us even in our unfaithfulness and to restore our marriage with him. This is the character of God for us. And this is the beauty of the cross. This is how Jesus establishes union with humanity by becoming one in human nature and by dying on the cross. And so do you know Jesus this way? This is how he presents himself, as our teacher, as our doctor, our physician, and ultimately as our groom. But it doesn't end just at the cross. It's eternally true because of the cross. So our next question, the second point, who did Jesus come for? In these three stories, how do we see who Jesus came for? Well, first, he comes for a tax collector, and you see the name here as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. It's described the same way in the book of Luke. But in the book of Matthew, he's quite clear, this is Matthew. Um, it's not uncommon in scripture for someone to have two names. And so I believe this is the character of Matthew. But more importantly, these aren't common annual taxes that would be given to the Roman rulers. These were tariffs. They were taxes on transported goods, on almost like customs. So that's why he's out by the sea, because he is um, supposed to give taxes on these transported goods, and it's, local, it's contracted out to a local um, that knew the area. And so this is also important because we know that this man is a Jew. He's supposed to be following the law. The Pharisees feel justified in condemning him because his very existence is proof that the people of God are not following the law of God. The people of God are in his exile because tax collectors of this time, as we know, were deceitful and were known for racking up prices and pursuing the idolatry of greed and money rather than integrity. And so Jesus goes from being with an unclean leper who's ritually unclean because he has a skin disease, but that's not his choice, of course. But this is perhaps even worse because while the leper was ritually unclean, this man is morally unclean. He's a known flagrant um, rebeller and has a reputation of deceit. 
And how do you see this man? Do you see this man and go, well, fortunately, I'm, I'm not like this, right? I, I don't idolize greed to where I work for the government and lie to others to establish my own wealth. I, I'm not like this tax collector. I'm not universally despised by culture. Um, I have a respectable job. I have a respectable position. And I seek to work honestly. And, and I pray that's true. But I, I want you to consider yourself perhaps as Paul considers himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the most. We have to not have a blindness and a hardness of heart. As we grow in holiness, we see just how powerful and pervasive the effects of sin are in our life, even as we grow in our discipleship. Or perhaps it's the other way. Perhaps you recognize that you're unworthy. Perhaps you recognize that you're a sinner. And when you see the call of Jesus to follow him, you think, I'm not like these church people. I've spoken with people at Westlake before that have confessed that it looks too clean. It looks too pristine, too perfect. Everyone has their life together. If you knew my life, if you knew the mistakes I've made, the shame that I live with, you'd know that Jesus doesn't want me. He doesn't call me to follow him because I can't be religious in the way that it looks like everyone else is doing. And if that's you, if that's what you're thinking right now, then I tell you, no, it's grace. It's this Jesus pursuing you that can then result in your repentance. But your repentance and turning to him doesn't earn his favor, doesn't earn his forgiveness. It's rather a grateful response to his call as he seeks after you and calls you to follow him. So he comes for the worst of the sinners, the tax collectors. But then not just the tax collector. In the next section, we see he comes for all sinners. And when he comes for all sinners, as he sits at their table and feasts, and when I say feast, I mean he's not just sitting. If your translation says sit, it's perhaps misleading because he's lying down, he's reclining. Katakaimai is the same word that's used earlier for the paralyzed man that's carried in on the bed. He wasn't sitting up on the bed, he was laying down on the bed. And that's what Jesus is doing here. They're reclining because this is a feast. This was a celebration. And it's not like the Pharisees either are like peeking in the window. This was a public thing in Palestinian culture. The courtyard would have the gate open so everyone could see how the guest of honor was being treated. And they can see that Jesus is feasting with these sinners. And so too, I ask, how do we identify ourselves? Are, are, are we seeing ourselves as those that Jesus wants to feast with? Or perhaps we need to see that the gospel is challenging us that we're more like the Pharisees at times. We are more like the Pharisees that are hard-hearted and seeking to justify our religiosity by pointing to the examples of all of the extrinsic things we do. I go to Bible study, I go to church, I serve at church, so I know I am right with God because of all of these external things that I do. And those external things are good if they're coming from an authentic, genuine heart, but it's possible to do all of those things for the wrong reasons. It's possible to do all of those things while your heart is still far from God. And I think that's the challenge he's presenting us here. Third, who Jesus comes for, the bridegroom. He comes for his bride in this final section. And just like we saw in the Old Testament, where God is making this covenant with Israel, and that even though they are unfaithful and undeserving, they will be his bride. So too, Jesus, who is Yahweh, comes and he feasts to give this anticipation of the future heavenly feast we await. 
because we are his bride. And that's not just the Jewish nation, but that is every tribe, tongue, and nation. There is one man, and we are the bride of Christ. This is the love that he has for you. We just finished going through the book of 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul tells the church of Corinth, a, a church full of Gentiles, that they have been betrothed to their husband. Think of what it means to wait and to long for the return of Jesus. Think of yourself as that bride waiting for their coming bridegroom and for the ultimate restoration of that relationship. And perhaps that can give you an patience and endurance to suffer through the trials and difficulties we experience in this life. Finally, we get to what Jesus transforms, the third point. And we can see it in three ways again. Jesus transforms what it means to be a follower of, uh, of a leader. You see, it wasn't uncommon for revolutionaries to come and call for people to follow them. This, this call that Jesus gives was spoken by other leaders before. If you read in the book of Acts, one of the most famous Pharisees, Gamaliel, says when the Christian movement is rising up that he names other two revolutionaries. And he says, if God isn't with them, then they're gonna be stopped. But if God is with them, then nothing can stop them. He says that those other leaders were killed and ultimately dispersed and came to nothing. But that's not what Jesus' kingdom uh, brought. We know that we can be grateful because Hebrews says that we have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus says that the gates of Hades cannot prevail against the church. And we can go out and evangelize and follow Jesus and spread the gospel with the confidence that he is the king that has defeated the power of death, that can soften the hardest heart, and that he can bring peace in this world as the church is a vehicle to go out and spread that. So following Jesus can be done with a confidence, but it also looks different. As the revolutionaries of the time thought following the leader was to pick up a sword and to overthrow the government. And that's not the kind of message that Jesus said for follow me. As we read on in Mark, you'll see in chapter eight that follow me means to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. Ultimately, to the point of death, to the point of martyrdom even. And that is what the Christian life means. So we can have this tension. We have to hold in truth both things, the joy and the confidence, but also the reality of suffering and the longing and waiting for the return of Christ. Both things are true at the same time. What does it mean to have Jesus transform, not just being a follower, but being religious in the next section? Re religious has a bad connotation, often. We say, it's not uncommon to hear, I'm not religious, I'm in a relationship with Jesus. And the reason we say that is because a relationship is genuine and authentic, and religion is extrinsic and fake, perhaps legalistic. But that's not the way the scripture talks about religion. And I would actually caution you against that tendency for two reasons. One is everyone's religious. <laughs> we all have something that we worship. We're designed that way. It's either God or it's an idol that we constructed. That's another sermon, I'll set that aside. Two is that scripture speaks of religion as a particular way. In the book of James, chapter one, verse 27, it says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
yes, visiting orphans and widows could be an external thing, but keep oneself unstained from the world. That's not to be out of the world or not a part of the world. Jesus feasted with sinners and those rejected God's law. It's to be unstained from it. So what does it mean to truly be religious in scripture? It's not to minimize the external disciplines. It's not to minimize the importance of attending church, prayer, Bible study, fasting, as we'll talk about in a moment. But it's to check and make sure, is your heart truly there? Is it an authentic and genuine expression of, of, of a life so in love with your coming bridegroom? That is what true heartfelt religion is about. And to be unstained from the world doesn't mean to be out of the world. You see, don't get the Pharisees wrong. Just like Jesus, the Pharisees wanted the sinners to repent. The difference wasn't in a desire for the sinners to repent. The difference was in the strategy. The difference was in the evangelizing, the mode. The Pharisees thought to keep their holiness, they had to be excluded from those that were different. Whereas Jesus practiced the mode of embrace and turning and calling out to them. And that's the paradox. Because as we seek to become holier in our lives and seek to have the character of Christ, that shouldn't lead us to neglect or separate from those that aren't pursuing the same, but rather it should seek to motivate us in love to pursue them even more so. The leper had to be brought to Jesus. Jesus went out to the tax collectors. He sought them to feast with them. And so I want you to ask in your own life, how can you individually take the time to have the wisdom that balances a Christian community and pursuing deep Christian relationships that will encourage you in your call to be like Christ, and yet also not to neglect pursuing with thoughtful and careful attention and diligence other non-believers in your life. There is wisdom to having um, companionship and discipleship in a Christian community, but not if that leads us to neglect others that are in our life that we could seek to make a difference for. And so finally, we come to fasting, And how does Jesus transform fasting? These two illustrations of the garment that is torn and the wineskin that is broken, as I said before, this is the new covenant coming and transcending and transforming the old covenant. And as we go throughout the book of Mark, there are so many examples of what this looks like, whether it's the Sabbath or discipleship, but the specific one Jesus gives here is fasting. And we have to recognize, first of all, at this time, fasting was a common, normal part of religious life. It was an identity marker for the Pharisees, not just that they prayed or they went to the temple, but that they fasted. And the reason for that was in the Old Testament, it became common for there to be a national fast for a grief over the destruction of the temple. Remember, these are a people who define themselves as being in exile. Excuse me as being in exile. And so when you fasted, you were expressing remorse that the presence of God was not with the people of Israel, that they were still in their slavery to sin and they were waiting for the return of Yahweh. And if you read the book of Zechariah in chapter eight, Yahweh makes a promise that when he restores the blessing to Israel, when he returns to be in presence with his people, their fasting will turn to feasting. And that's exactly what Jesus shows up to do, to feast with people. And so we have to ask ourselves, not why are these people fasting? We have to ask ourselves, why are we not fasting? And I'm comfortable saying that. I know for some, it may be a practice. I can be honest with you, in my life, it has not been a common practice. 
And this is something that I've been really challenged on as I've studied this text lately. Because we need to ask ourselves the question of why we don't fast more. And what could be the reason for that? I'll try and offer a brief historical reason. I think Protestants are afraid of fasting because ever since our beginning, here in Switzerland, in Zurich, Ulrich Zwingli started the Protestant Reformation by accompanying and being a part of a meal where they ate sausages on a fast day as a way of showing the Roman Catholic Church, you don't have authority to tell us when to fast. Fasting isn't wrong, but it's a freedom of the conscience. I have the liberty to know when I'm going to fast and when I'm not going to fast, and I'm not interested in this external right that will manipulate God and have me earn favor with him. Those things are true. We're not trying to manipulate God when we fast, but our concern against legalism can't then make us reject the rights and the disciplines that form habits in us that create a character where we become the kind of person that longs for God. That's what fasting is. It's a hunger for God to return and to be present with us. And it's a physical expression of that spiritual appetite, that spiritual desire that you have. And Jesus expects that his followers would do it. He says this in Matthew 6. He says, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, don't do it in a way that makes your face very sad and you make it very public so everyone can see, but do it because you're longing for Christ's return. Here in Mark 2, Jesus says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. And when is the bridegroom taken away? Well, this could be an allusion to the cross where this very sudden death of Jesus causes immense sorrow and grief. But I think it is also an allusion to Jesus' ascension, where he rises up into heaven and we are absent from the body with him. We're present in spirit through the Holy Spirit, but we are absent from the body. And we are earning, are earnestly longing for his return. So the transformation that Jesus brings of fasting, as it was common in the Old Testament, so too, now in the New Testament, when we fast, it's different because we're longing for the return of Yahweh, but we know, in a sense, he has already returned. He is already here with us. It, so the kingdom of God is both here, in a sense, and it's not yet. It's present, and we're waiting for it to fully be realized. And so I want you to ask yourself, is the absence of fasting in your life evidence that you're perhaps too comfortable, too satisfied, with the present world, with the way things are. We live in a very wealthy nation. We live in a culture of immediate gratification, immediate satisfaction. If you want it, it can be delivered to your door instantly. And we need to challenge ourselves to think perhaps practicing this discipline could be a way of expressing a heavenly mindset, a heavenly longing, not the heavenly longing that turns me away from my neighbor, but one that reminds me of the priority of my call to live in a way that is waiting for the return of Christ. Just like we don't grieve as those who have no hope, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we don't fast from an emptiness, we fast for a longing for God's return. And fast for a biblical purpose. There's, there's a non-religious way to fast. There's all kinds of diets you could look at that talk about fasting. But in scripture, fasting for a biblical purpose is to have an urgency in prayer, to discern the will of God. In the book of Acts, they fasted when they appointed a new elder. Fast to express grief or express humility. Fast in order to have a 
kind of character that can resist temptation. This is what Jesus did in the wilderness. He fasted before battling against the devil. And so too, your resistance to spiritual temptation could increase as you practice a resistance to food as well. Don't overemphasize this practice. It doesn't come up a ton in the New Testament, but I am convinced that Christians today, at least I know in my life and the circles I'm a part of, don't take this practice seriously enough. Think of fasting for the grief in the world, such as Ukraine and what's going on, calling Christ to return and bring peace. And so as I come to a conclusion here, I know not only that we fast, but we also feast. This anticipation of the future feast that we will all experience that the disciples had with Jesus is something we can participate in even now when we take the Lord's Supper. Don't think of communion merely as something of looking back to the past, but it's rather something that we do, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, when we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. So it's a forward-looking thing. We take the Lord's Supper waiting for us to sit with him at the feast in person. And just as the manna in the Old Testament is described, the bread that came from heaven, it tasted like honey. Because the promised land is a land flowing with milk and honey. So too, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are tasting of Christ. We are feeding on him and with him in anticipation of when he will return. And so as you approach this table, ask yourself, are you hungering for that? Is this what you're feasting on? Is this your true spiritual desire? As I conclude, this is what I want to leave you with. These are the marks of what it means to be identified as living in exile. We are following the way of our true king, not only with our feet, but with our heart in repentance of our sins, knowing that it's his grace that was given first to change us. Secondly, we're seeking out the hurting. We're seeking out the wicked, those outside of the religious community. We're looking for them to share the good news of the kingdom of God. And finally, we fast in eager longing for the ultimate return of the bridegroom, where we will see God face to face and be at peace. Let's pray.